0: Org. Many thanks to the School of Criminal Justice at the University of Cincinnati and the Criminal Justice Office Hours podcast for permission to re-air this interview, which first appeared online January 3rd, 2019. Hi, welcome to Criminal Justice Office Hours. Today we are talking to Dr. Barry Feld from the University of Minnesota Law School. He joins us to talk about his new book, The Evolution of the Juvenile Court. Race, Politics, and the Criminalizing of Juvenile Justice. Enjoy.
1: All right, so today we're just going to have Dr. Feld talk to us about the evolution of juvenile court, and we'll go from there. So Dr. Feld, uh, just give us the overview. Okay. The juvenile court lies at the intersection of use policy and crime policy. How should the legal system respond when the kid is a criminal and the criminal is a kid? Which raises the separate question, how and why do we think about kids and criminals in the ways that we do? And how have our ideas about kids and criminals changed over the years? And how does race affect? the ways in which we think about kids and criminals. The juvenile court is an institution over 100 years old, and over its life course it has evolved through four eras. The progressive era from 1899 until the 1960s, the due process era from the 1950s and 1960s, the get-tough era from the 1970s onward, many of whose features still persist today, and finally the kids-are-different era that began around 2005. These historical uh, periods reflect larger social processes. They don't divide neatly, and characteristics of one overlap with features of the next. But in each of these four periods, the progressive era, the due process era, the get tough era, and the kids are different era, we've had different views about kids, about crime control, and about race, which have affected our justice system's responses to young offenders. Our ideas about kids, our ideas about crime, our ideas about race are social constructs. They are Uh, artifacts of culture, and they change with social conditions. So in my thinking about the juvenile court, I think about the juvenile court as a dependent variable. And our ideas about kids and crime control are the intervening variables that affect the characteristics of the juvenile court. And finally, features of the economy, of cities, of families, of race, and politics all influence our thinking about youth, about crime, and the juvenile court. So we have two ideas about adolescence. On the one hand, we think about kids as immature and vulnerable, and on the other hand, we think about them as being mature and responsible. And policymakers choose between these constructs of immaturity and responsibility to maximize the social control of young people. The second idea is our idea about crime control. And we have the traditional distinctions between retributivist and utilitarian uh, justifications, deterrence, incapacitation, or rehabilitation. And our theories of crime reflect our assumptions about free will or determinism and criminal responsibility and the like. So our conceptions of kids' Immature and incompetent versus mature and competent, and our ideas about crime control, punishment versus treatment or diversion, affect the substantive goals and the procedural means of the juvenile court. The substantive goals are the purposes of intervention. Why are we uh, dealing with kids in the ways that we do? And procedural means affect the process by which we will achieve those goals. So when we think about substance. In the juvenile court, we're thinking about culpability, about mental states, about criminal responsibility, about treatment or punishment, about diminished responsibility, about deserved consequences. And these substantive questions arise when we detain juveniles, when we sentence delinquents, when we transfer kids to criminal court, and when we sentence them as adults. The procedural means of the juvenile court focus on their Competence to exercise rights. And the capacity to exercise rights is implicated in everything from kids' ability to exercise their Miranda rights, their competence to stand trial, their ability to uh, work with counsel, and their right to a jury trial. The third variable that affects the way we think about the juvenile court is race and ethnicity. Um, because At the beginning of the progressive era, we had massive floods of immigrants pouring in from Europe, uh, which gave rise to the juvenile court as an institution for assimilation and acculturation. And during the first half of the 20th century, we also saw the great migration of African Americans from the rural South to the urban North and West, which again influenced our social policies about uh, children about crime control. So what accounts for the changes in our thinking about kids, crime, race, and the juvenile court? And here I look at changes in the economy, changes in the structure of cities, changes in families, race, and ethnicity, all of which are played out through the political process. So we can think about the juvenile court as emerging during the transition from an agricultural to an industrial society, and later the transition from an industrial society to an information and service economy. The economy, changes in the economy, affect the structure and function of families and our construction of childhood, um, whether we integrate children quickly into the workforce or have prolonged dependency. Changes in the economy also affected patterns of immigration at the beginning of the 20th century and the great migration during the middle of the 20th century. And all of these changes in the economy and patterns of migration and um, family structure affected the social organization of cities. And finally, juvenile courts are legislative creations. Uh, there is no constitutional right to a juvenile court. And so juvenile courts are all created by state legislatures. And in in the process of writing that legislation, we have the political contest about our ideas about kids and crime that are reflected in the jurisdiction of the juvenile court, transfer of youth to criminal court, and juvenile and criminal sentencing uh, of young offenders. So let me start with the progressive era. Um, and we date the juvenile court from 1899. Um, that was during the last third of the 19th century. America was being transformed from an agricultural to an industrial economy, and during that transformation, we saw massive waves of immigrants pouring in um, from from Europe um, and increased urbanization. Now, the the immigrants who were coming from Europe we were not the Anglo-Protestants of, of earlier generations, um, but they were coming from Italy, from Poland, from uh, Eastern uh, Europe, uh, and they were coming from rural backgrounds, and um, many of them were Catholic, and so it posed problems of assimilation and acculturation, and the juvenile court was one of the institutions created to Americanize uh, these new immigrants. The change in the economy from an agricultural to an industrial society also affected the roles of women and children. Uh, Toward the end of the 19th century, there was a child-saver movement um, of upper and upper middle class women uh, who were promoting a particular social construction of children as vulnerable and immature and dependent, and they were Uh, trying to create a whole host of of social institutions, uh, juvenile court, child labor laws, uh, kindergartens, playgrounds, all of which were designed to structure the development of of children. The third thing that occurred as part of this modernization process was the emergence of positivist criminology, which supplanted the traditional thinking of uh, criminal law that Criminals were uh, crimes were the product of free will actors, and instead they looked at um, antecedent deterministic forces that uh, caused people to behave in the way they did. So what the juvenile court did was to meld the new idea of childhood as immature and innocent and vulnerable, and these new ideas of social control that we and emphasized a more rehabilitative uh, approach to to young offenders. Um, They viewed children as the the products of the the larger culture in which they were growing up, and so they were viewed as less blameworthy for their misdeeds and more amenable to treatment. Um, And so the juvenile court was really envisioned as a a judicial welfare system, Uh, and its goals were to divert children from the criminal justice system and to rehabilitate them in a separate system. The rehabilitation emphasized uh, treatment over over punishment and focused on the offender rather than the offense. Um, but a second less uh, obvious goal of, of the juvenile court was simply to divert kids from the destructive consequences of, of the criminal justice system. And diversion has always been uh, sort of a passive alternative to shield kids from the life-altering consequences of criminal justice involvement, regardless of whether judges could actually uh, rehabilitate kids and change their lives. Because the goal was welfare, uh, the the juvenile court really de-emphasized procedures altogether. You wouldn't take a lawyer when you visited your doctor, and so they didn't think that it was necessary to have procedural safeguards because they regarded young offenders as immature and uh, procedures as simply an impediment to uh, judges dealing with the real issues of kids. Now, it's important to emphasize that from its beginning, the juvenile court was intended to discriminate. It was intended to discriminate between our children and other people's children, between the children of the progressive, upper middle class, uh, white uh, Anglo-Protestants, and this new generation of immigrants who were pouring into the cities of the North and and Midwest. Um, It's also important to emphasize that juvenile courts originated primarily in the northern states. um, And... At that time, there were not a lot of black children um, in the North. Uh, At the time the juvenile court was created, uh, the vast majority, over 90% of blacks, still lived in the rural South, Um, and juvenile courts came much later to the South, and for most of the history of Southern juvenile justice, uh, young black. Were treated like adults, sentenced to chain gangs, executed, um, and whatever benefits of the juvenile court in the South were reserved for for white children. Uh, that brings us up to the to the 1950s, and and um, and here I, I use a mnemonic to describe the changes that took place during the due process era and the get tough era. And, and I describe it as first the North went South and then the South went North. Um, and I'll explain that what I mean by the North went South and then the South went North. Um, between World War I and World War II, we witnessed the great migration of, of African Americans from the rural South to the urban North. And this made race a national political issue. During the post-World War II era, A whole host of public policies, federal housing policies, tax policies, mortgage policies, highway construction policies, real estate lending policies, led to the suburbanization of whites and to the creation of urban ghettos uh, in the North. And as blacks moved from the South to the North, uh, even as they encountered hostility, Uh, It also increased their political power um, in states where they were finally allowed to vote. And so it was against this backdrop of changes in racial demography that the Warren Court in the 1950s and the 1960s uh, began a whole host of decisions uh, aimed at achieving civil rights. And and this is what I mean when I say uh, the North went south that during the 1950s and the 1960s, uh, the Warren Court began the process of desegregation, um, of decisions upholding civil rights, of reform of criminal procedure, uh, all of which were aimed at dismantling uh, Jim Crow legislation and ending apartheid and segregation throughout the country. And this occurred during the period between Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, and the passage of the Civil Rights Act in in 1964. And it's really important to appreciate that even though Brown v. Board of Education uh, was a school case, um, it really galvanized racial attitudes, because in the South, hostility to integration in schools was the top priority um, of racists. Um, and it really radicalized Southern racism. Um, and it's also important to appreciate that this due process revolution, uh, that was going on, um, occurred against the backdrop of increases in youth crime in the 1960s and race riots in, in the 1960s. Um, in 1967, um, the President's Crime Commission looked at uh, the the causes of crime and the justice system's responses to it. In 1968, uh, the Kerner Commission, the National Advisory Committee on Civil Disorders, uh, looked at the the causes of the race riots going on in cities and attributed it to American racism. The President's Crime Commission looked at juvenile courts and devoted a whole volume to to juvenile courts. And it emphasized juvenile courts' procedural deficiencies, the punitive quality of correctional institutions, and the racial disparities that were rampant in juvenile justice administrations. In 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the case of Inray Galt, drew heavily on the Crime Commission's reports and required states to provide juveniles with certain procedural protections. The right to notice, the right to a hearing, the right to an attorney, and the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. And the Supreme Court, in granting delinquents procedural rights, assumed that they were competent to actually exercise those procedural rights, which, as I will suggest, is a problematic assumption. But one of the important consequences of golf was it led to the criminalizing of juvenile justice. Because once the court gave juveniles the right to an attorney, states immediately began to uh, insert prosecutors into juvenile court, and that led to a criminalizing of the juvenile justice system. In subsequent decisions, the court furthered the criminal convergence between juvenile and criminal courts. In In Inray Winship, the court required states to prove delinquency beyond a reasonable doubt, using the same standard as we do for criminal convictions. In the case of Reed v. Jones, the court held that after a state had tried a juvenile in juvenile court, it could not re-prosecute them as, as an adult that that was double jeopardy, and the court found a functional equivalence between delinquency trials and criminal prosecutions. The Supreme Court in McIver v. Pennsylvania denied delinquents the right to a jury trial, um, and it was a sort of muddled opinion in which the court sort of thought that delinquency proceedings were not quite criminal, that maybe juvenile courts treated kids and maybe they weren't, really, criminal courts. But notwithstanding McIver's denial of the right to a jury trial, the Supreme Court decision in Gault and in Winship had transformed the juvenile court from a welfare agency into a scaled-down, second-class criminal court. It had shifted the focus of delinquency proceedings from a child's best interest to legal guilt, whether or not they had committed a crime. It made more visible the relationship between crime and the sanctions that the courts imposed. And the provision of procedural safeguards also tended to legitimate punishment. Once we've given the kids some protection, we can punish them harder. And finally, even though Galt was intended as a civil rights decision, the punishment the juvenile courts imposed disproportionately affected black youths. In almost immediate reaction to the Supreme Court's granting of civil rights, criminal procedural safeguards, and due process in juvenile courts, we saw the emergence of the get-tough era. Um, And this is where I say the South went North. Republicans, beginning in the late 1960s, adopted what's called the Southern Strategy to appeal to white Southerners' racial animus. And they used crime and welfare as wedge issues with which to talk about race, but without really talking explicitly about race. Beginning in the 1970s, we saw a major shift in American society in the economy. We saw the beginning of the process of Deindustrialization in which manufacturing, starting in 1973, began to decline in the face of a global economy. And that deindustrialization particularly affected urban blacks who were living in the segregated inner cities and who had moved to the uh, industrial opportunities in the post World War II era. And as the economy crumbled, Uh, In the 1970s and 1980s, these blacks living in concentrated poverty uh, were subject to a variety of criminogenic forces. In the 1980s, we saw the introduction of crack cocaine uh, into the inner cities. And crack cocaine and the urban drug markets were associated with high levels of gun violence. Um, And this was particularly reflected in dramatic increases in the black youth homicide rate in the 1980s and early 1990s. So the conservative Republicans, uh, beginning in the 1970s, started waging war. They waged a war on crime, they waged a war on drugs, and finally they waged a war on kids. You know the mantra: adult crime, adult time, or old enough to do the crime, old enough to do the time, was the hallmark of the get tough era. And these policies affected sentencing in juvenile court, transfer of youths to criminal court, uh, and sentencing of youths in adult uh, in, in adult court. And in the use of crime and welfare as wedged issues. The conservatives were using coded language uh, to evoke race, but without explicitly talking about race, so that they could be racists with deniability. Perhaps the, the most uh, explicit was the emphasis on super predators. There was a concern that uh, there was a coming generation of cold eyed, remorseless killers who were going to cause a bloodbath of criminality. It never happened. But the get tough era, which led to mass incarceration for adults, uh, also led to crime suppression strategies uh, to deal with juveniles. So, starting in the 1980s, states began transferring, uh, began changing both their uh, delinquency sanctions and their policies to transfer kids to criminal court. They shifted emphasis from treating kids to accountability. They shifted from rehabilitation to retribution with the adoption of determinate and mandatory sentences for juveniles. They shifted the emphasis from concern about the offender to a focus on the offense. And finally, they shifted discretion from judges who are viewed as coddling kids to prosecutors who would have a more get-tough attitude. The states began transferring more and younger juveniles to the adult criminal court, old enough to do the crime, old enough to do the time. And criminal court judges sentenced these transferred youths more harshly than adults. They convicted them at higher rates, incarcerated them more frequently, uh, and imposed uh, longer sentences. And youthfulness during the Get Tough era was actually an aggravating factor in sentencing. And it's important to emphasize uh, there were great racial disparities. Black kids were much more likely to be transferred, to be convicted, and to be sentenced uh, than their white counterparts. The same changes occurred in the juvenile court as well uh, with delinquency sanctions. State changed the purpose of their juvenile codes, their sentencing statutes, their sentencing practices, their conditions of confinement, um, and all of which emphasize punishment over welfare, uh, retribution over rehabilitation. Now, this get-tough policy didn't just affect black kids or delinquents more generally. Um, It also had indirect effects on girls and on schools. Back in the 1970s, there was a movement to get non-criminal status offenders out of delinquency institutions, Uh, and primarily status offenders were girls. But as states were trying to get girls out of the institutions for their misconduct, for waywardness, for incorrigibility, for being runaways, states did not really provide alternatives. And so, again, we saw what was perceived as an uptick in girl violence, uh, most of which were, were simple assaults. And these simple assaults were simply relabeling fights between girls and their folks. Um, but now they were criminals, and so it was possible to continue to incarcerate girls. Uh, and so they were sort of collateral damage of the Get tough era. Um, Importantly, schools were another area in which we saw the same type of punitive uh, policies emerge during this get toughs" era. The Supreme Court in in the 1980s decided that the Fourth Amendment would have a lower standard to search kids in schools uh, than was required under the Fourth Amendment for searching adults. Uh, normally, in order to conduct the search, it requires probable cause. But in the context of schools, uh, school officials needed only reasonable suspicion, which is a lower and less less precise standard. At the same time, beginning in the 1990s when we saw school shootings, uh, schools began to introduce school resource officers, which is basically cops by another name who were in school to enforce both school rules and also uh, the criminal law, so that an altercation between a student and a, and a teacher, which previously would have been handled with detention, now became an assault and a referral to juvenile court. In addition, schools also began to adopt zero-tolerance policies uh, for any kind of student misconduct. And so the combination of a lower search standard, heightened surveillance, the increased presence of police in school, and zero-tolerance policies also fueled the school-to-prison pipeline, in which schools increasingly referred uh, students to, to juvenile court. And again, there were vast racial disparities in the rates of referrals, and it was primarily urban black males were the recipient of this um, untoward uh, attention. It's against the backdrop of the Get Tough era that the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, beginning in 1995, embarked on a very ambitious research program. Uh, Between 1995 and 2005, the MacArthur Foundation sponsored a research network on adolescent development and juvenile justice. And they invested over $150 million in doing basic research on adolescent developmental psychology and neuroscience, focusing on questions of kids' culpability, kids' competence, and uh, kids' responsivity to, to treatment. And the MacArthur Foundation's body of research uh, really helped to usher in the Kids Are Different era, which began around 2005. Now, it's important to appreciate that the seriousness of a crime is really the product of two features, the harm caused and the culpability of the actor who caused that harm. Now, a person's age does not affect the harm that's caused. You can be just as mugged by a 15-year-old as a 25-year-old. Your car stolen by a 16-year-old as a 36-year-old. But the culpability involved differs, and immaturity reduces young offenders' blameworthiness. So what the Supreme Court did was to say what it was really a response to the get-tough laws that had ignored adolescents' reduced culpability and their uh, diminished criminal responsibility. In a series of decisions, the Supreme Court in Roper v. Simmons in 2005 abolished the death penalty for crimes committed by people under the age of 18. In 2010, the Supreme Court in Graham v. Florida prohibited life without parole sentences were young offenders who did not commit homicide, and in 2012, the Supreme Court in Miller v. Alabama prohibited mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles who committed murder. In all three of these cases, Roper and Graham and Miller, the court emphasized the reduced culpability, the diminished responsibility of these younger offenders. As I said, the seriousness of a crime is the function of harm and culpability, and the Supreme Court emphasized that juveniles simply are less blameworthy. The court argued that um, adolescents' immature judgment, their limited self-control, and their impulsivity uh, reduced their criminal responsibility. The court also emphasized juveniles' greater responsibility to peer pressure and the fact that they could not escape the criminogenic environments in which they were trapped. And finally, the court emphasized that adolescents' personalities were in transition and provided less clear evidence of uh, continued depravity uh, into adulthood. And in these decisions, the Supreme Court drew on the developmental psychological research uh, and the neuroscience research that the MacArthur Foundation had sponsored uh, to emphasize why it was that kids thought differently and behaved differently uh, from from adults. Now, the Supreme Court in Roper and in Graham uh, treated adolescence or usefulness categorically. They basically said there is no way on which we can individualize uh, culpability assessment. Uh, and the court feared that the brutality of a crime would outweigh the useful, uh, the effects of usefulness as a mitigating factor. And so the court simply used age as a proxy for reduced culpability. Uh, in doing that, the court was really drawing on an argument I've made for the last quarter of a century uh, that youth are less criminally responsible than adults and should receive shorter sentences than adults simply because they're young. Um, And I've called it a youth discount, that we should simply give young people much shorter sentences, even if they cause the same harm because of their impulsivity uh, or inability to to have the the criminal responsibility of adults. The court also emphasized juveniles' reduced culpability. In the case of JDB versus North Carolina, the Supreme Court emphasized developmental differences in youth's ability to exercise uh, procedural rights. Now, importantly, as a result of GALT, delinquency proceedings have become more complex and more formal and the consequences more severe, which makes greater demands on children's ability to exercise procedural rights. As I said earlier, we have two images of kids. One is of vulnerable children who need protection from their own immaturity, and the other is that they're mature and responsible and almost adult-like. Now, states treat juveniles just like adults when formal equality results in practical inequality, and they use special juvenile court procedures when they provide an advantage to the state. So I'll give you some examples of the way this plays out in practice. In the case of Miranda v. Arizona, the Supreme Court required police to give suspects a Miranda warning and then allowed them to waive their rights after they had received the warning. In the case of Fair v. Michael C. in 1979, the Supreme Court used the adult standard, knowing, intelligent, and voluntary under the totality of the the circumstances to evaluate juveniles' waivers of Miranda rights. Even though the developmental psychological research uh, reports juveniles' impaired judgment, impulsivity, susceptibility to social influence, and reduced competence, the court decided to treat juveniles just like adults and required them to exercise their Miranda rights just as efficiently as adults, which they can't do. As a result, juveniles waive their Miranda rights at higher rates than do adults, and they are much, much more prone to make false confessions uh, to escape the rigors of the interrogation room. Similarly, the Supreme Court has required uh, criminal suspects to be competent to stand trial to understand the nature of the proceedings, to be able to work with their attorney, and the like. With adults, typically it is severe mental illness that renders them incompetent to stand trial, that they don't understand what's going on around them. But part of the research of the MacArthur Foundation pointed out that younger juveniles, especially those 14 and younger, exhibit exactly the same deficits of understanding of ability to work with counsel um, and to participate in proceedings as do uh, mentally ill adults. When we look at juveniles' ability to exercise the right to counsel, it turns out, again, we use the same standard, knowing, intelligent, and voluntary under the totality of circumstances, to evaluate juveniles' waivers of the right to counsel as adults' right uh, a waiver uh, of, of the right to counsel, and again, we know that juveniles do not have the understanding of adults. They're more susceptible to social influence, particularly judges who encourage them to waive counsel, and they have less understanding of the way in which the legal system operates. Uh, juveniles don't understand. The role of counsel in the way that an adult criminal defendant might. And judges have an incentive to expedite their dockets by encouraging uh, juveniles to waive their right to counsel. And it turns out that uh, juveniles go through juvenile court unrepresented at much higher rates than do adult criminal defendants. Even when juveniles have lawyers, Uh, there are many structural impediments to effective representation. Uh, The juvenile defenders carry much heavier caseloads than do adults. Uh, They have fewer resources with which to conduct investigations. States do not adequately fund uh, research or investigative uh, opportunities. Uh, And so we see that juveniles waive counsel uh, at, at much higher rates than adults. Uh, or when they are represented, um, they are represented less adequately. As a result, uh, the lack of counsel or the lack of effective assistance of counsel undermines the legitimacy of the juvenile justice process, and especially with its now much more punitive consequences. Finally, the Supreme Court in McIver v. Pennsylvania denied juveniles the right to a jury trial, which every adult criminal defendant enjoys. This is an instance in which, rather than treating juveniles just like adults, they use special juvenile court procedures that provide an advantage to the state. The jury trial, the right to a jury trial, is the only provision in three different sections of the Constitution. And it's in three different sections of the Constitution because the jury is the ultimate check on the power of the state It helps to uphold the standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and it increases the transparency and visibility of the justice system. The court in McIver held that judges can find facts just as well as as juries, um, and emphasized that juveniles did not need any protection from the paternalistic judges of the juvenile court. It turns out the court was right on both counts. It turns out that. Fact-finding by juries differs from fact-finding by judges, and juries tend to acquit at higher rates than do judges. They have a higher standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt than do judges. And judges in a bench trial are uh, exposed to a variety of evidentiary contamination that the rules of evidence are designed to shield juries from. So as a result, judges are more prone to convict juveniles, and especially paternalistic judges who want to help kids. In addition, juveniles require the same protection from the state that adult criminal defendants do. The get-tough policies I described earlier of the 1980s and the 1990s have made punishment much more explicit uh, in juvenile court. In addition to the direct punitive consequences of delinquency convictions, we also use delinquency convictions to enhance adult criminal sentences, to impose a variety of collateral consequences uh, for delinquency convictions. And perhaps the most onerous um, is sex offender registration of the juveniles, uh, many of which involve Uh, a 16-year-old boy with a 14-year-old girl where there's just a small age difference, uh, but that's treated as the same sort of statutory rape as a 26-year-old with a 14-year-old. Anyhow, the Supreme Court in Roper and Graham and Miller emphasized juveniles' diminished responsibility and barred the harshest sentences that states could impose on juveniles convicted as adults. But most of the punitive legacy of the Get Tough era remains on the books. So this is a good time to think about uh, reforming the juvenile justice system. There has been a precipitous drop in youth crime over the past two decades. Immigrants and terrorists have superseded super-predators on the political agenda, so we're less concerned about youth crime today. Developmental psychology and neuroscience provide a much stronger basis on which to advocate youth policies, and a whole host of foundations and youth advocacy groups have emerged to try to undo the damage of the get-tough era. But it's important to emphasize juvenile courts do not cause delinquency in the first instance, and they can't really ameliorate the root causes of delinquency, which is child poverty. Poverty is the single leading risk factor for child development. It affects child-rearing practices. It affects youth's health and hunger. It affects their residential stability. It affects their community safety. It affects the quality of schools. Poverty is implicated in children's suicide, mental illness, drug use, homelessness, school leaving, and crime. In the United States, the child poverty rate is 20%. But that obscures the fact of differences in child poverty by race. For white children, the child poverty rate is 11%, and for black children, it's about 40%. Child poverty is the United States' public policy. We know that because it is anywhere from two to five times higher than the child poverty rates in our Western industrial, in our Western European uh, industrial nations. It's two to five times higher than that of comparable societies. So the poverty is not an inevitable consequence of natural scarcity, but it's a whole host of policies to prefer older people and wealthy people over the young, the poor, and families. European countries are able to ameliorate child poverty through a children's allowance, through paid paternal leave, and through subsidized child care. Despite the fact that the majority of kids who live in poverty are white, the public resists these structural reforms and public policies because black kids would benefit And it again reflects our hostility to other people's children. Fifty years ago, the Kerner Commission warned that we're moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal, and that to continue present policies would make permanent the division of our country into two societies, one largely Negro and poor located in central cities, the other predominantly white and affluent located in suburbs. The deindustrialization that began in the 1970s has increased segregation, concentrated poverty, failed schools, and inequality. And unfortunately, we lack political will and leadership to address segregation, poverty, housing, schools, social, economic, and racial inequality that are the antecedents to juvenile delinquency.
0: Is all juvenile courts the same, or are they different uh, depending on the jurisdiction, or how does that look?
1: Okay, well, as as I said earlier, juvenile courts are legislative creations. Um, And as legislative creations, um, they can vary in the age of uh, juvenile court jurisdiction, the age of length of disposition, and along many other dimensions. And that varies from state to state. Even though in any given state the same law applies throughout the state, there is also going to be variation in the way juvenile courts actually conduct their business. Urban courts tend to be more formal than suburban courts or rural courts. They have more access to detention facilities. Um, They have more resources for out-of-home placement. Um... So that even though the same laws and the same court rules apply throughout a state, there will in fact be considerable variability within a state, something I've called justice by geography, uh, in which urban, suburban, and rural locale uh, affect the way in which kids are handled. And because um, rural courts have less access to community-based facilities, for example, they're more likely to send youths to training schools than urban courts that might have more community resources as an alternative to to institutions. They also vary in their ability to deliver legal services. Um, It's easier to have a well-staffed public defender system in an urban court that has a large critical mass of delinquents than in a small rural county um, that doesn't process delinquency cases except on, you know, alternate Thursday afternoons. And um, my one question is, you've talked a lot about these different issues we've seen in the juvenile court, and you mentioned the youth discount that you've been um, proposing for a few decades now, I think you said. Um, So can you talk a little about how these policy implications look in practice and then kind of the next steps you see for the juvenile justice uh, system to hopefully kind of continue to address these differences that we know exist between juveniles and adults? Okay, there have been many efforts at at juvenile justice reform over over the past couple of decades, and I'll just sort of highlight some of them. Um, One of the major concerns is the overuse of pretrial detention, of holding juveniles in uh, the juvenile equivalent of jail while uh, awaiting their, their trials. And for the past couple of decades, the Annie E. Casey Foundation Um, has been uh, sponsoring efforts to reduce the reliance on pretrial detention as a way of uh, handling juveniles Um, and by using things like risk assessment instruments uh, and other types of uh, decision-making tools to reduce the overuse of of detention facilities. Um, There's been a lot of efforts to reduce racial disparities. Uh, And the Hayward Burns Foundation has been uh, instrumental in trying to uh, get states to reduce the racial disparities that are endemic uh, to to juvenile justice administration. The uh, MacArthur Foundation has sponsored uh, the models for change in which they have enlisted states uh, to participate in a variety of reform efforts, um, and many of which include uh, trying to improve the, the delivery of legal services uh, in, in juvenile courts uh, by making lawyers more readily available and better trained to assist uh, delinquents in, in, the, in the delinquency system. There has been some state response to the Supreme Court decisions uh, prohibiting uh, life without parole sentences and mandatory uh, life sentences for murderers by reducing somewhat um, those harsh sentences and providing, for example, for uh, parole release consideration after 25 years or 40 years or something like that, or in some states abolishing life without parole for juveniles. Uh, altogether uh, so there are a variety of, of reform efforts going on um, trying to ameliorate the the harshest consequences of of the get tough era um, but at the end of the day uh, most of these reforms still require uh, state funding to provide counsel to provide alternatives to uh, to pretrial detention uh, to to provide preventive uh, interventions in the community rather than incarceration, and it's ultimately up to states uh, to adequately provide a real justice system for children.
0: So Dr. Feld, you had previously wrote and advocated for abolishing the juvenile court. Can you talk about kind of how that would look or uh, what that argument is?
1: Okay. Back in the 1990s, um, I was so frustrated with the procedural deficiencies of juvenile courts and the racial disparities in juvenile courts and the punitiveness of juvenile courts that I basically said we should just get rid of them. We should try young offenders in criminal court with enhanced procedural protections and with um, a different sentencing system that provided a youth discount, shorter sentences For youth because of their diminished responsibility. At the time I made that argument, it was considered a very radical proposal, but it was influenced by my experience of having taught in Sweden. Sweden does not have juvenile courts. Norway does not have juvenile courts. Finland does not have juvenile courts. Denmark does not have juvenile courts. And what they realized is that it's very difficult to combine a social welfare system and a social control system in one agency. So for young people in the Scandinavian countries, 15 and younger, they're dealt with exclusively in their social welfare system, in their child welfare system. And for offenders 16 to 18, they're dealt with in their criminal courts. But one of the sentencing options available to their criminal courts, is to sentence children to the child welfare system. And of course, the sentences that they impose on uh, offenders in in those countries are also much, much shorter uh, than uh, those we use in this country. So that, you know, my idea to abolish the juvenile court was simply a shameless theft of the Scandinavian approach. What I realized in my subsequent years of writing about it, is the United States, because it is so deeply racist, is not capable of providing the kind of social welfare system that the Scandinavian countries enjoy and which enable them to avoid the use of criminal social control to deal with children whose primary problem is they have a lousy family, which isn't their fault, or they live in a lousy neighborhood, which isn't their fault, or they go to failing schools, which isn't their fault, um, or they are living in dire poverty, which isn't their fault. But instead, we emphasize the kid is a criminal, which is at least partially their fault, and which detracts from a more sympathetic and welfare approach to their real problems.
0: Thank you for coming on, Dr. Feld. This is very interesting. Sure. And- I'm right here. You.
1: Yeah, that was awesome. Thank
0: you Appreciate so much. everything. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you for listening to Shusai podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.